Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. And from the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Charlotte. For our guest today, let's welcome Michael McCutcheon, founder of McCutcheon Construction, an employee-owned company. For more information, feel free to visit mcbuild.com. Dot com. That's mcbuild.com. Hello, Michael. We're excited and truly honored to have you on the Modern Architect radio show today. Well, thank you, Tom. You know, I've listened to many of your podcasts. Thank I you. I love them. It's a great honor to be here. Thank you very much. Now, I know we introduced you as founder of McCutcheon Construction. However, I've uh, in preparing for our show, I've recognize that you're actually quite multifaceted and that you do meditation. You are part of the AIA in the East Bay. I mean, there's a lot of uh, dynamic involvement on your part that uh, I could only search so far in the search engines, but in discussing with you, share with, with, if you will, our audience, why you have such great and varied interests. Well, it is true. As you know, Tom, I'm a teacher of Transcendental Meditation. Been that since 1973. I took a multi-month course after graduating from UC Berkeley with a degree in biology. Took a professional level uh, postgraduate course to become a teacher of Transcendental Meditation, or TM. So that's one of my interests. But that comes really from my long-time interest in something extremely fundamental, which is, what is reality? What is the nature of life? So I studied uh, physics, and my interest in physics was more in the direction of cosmology and uh, ultimate reality than it was trying to calculate the terminal velocity of rockets, which seemed to be what the university wanted to teach. So I ended up going the direction of Fritjof Capra, Tao physics, stuff like that. And that's also why I, in the building profession, I ended up in the, as you know, the green building or sustainable building space, because that's also about looking beyond the superficial material aspects of construction and looking at the deeper values of it that hopefully 
create a long-term better legacy for the earth. It's similar in backpacking where we had the idea. I also do backpacking. Something called <laughs> leave no trace. Have you ever heard of that, Tom? Uh, now I have. Well, leave no trace <laughs> means when you camp, for example, the next person walking down the trail should never know that you were there. Oh. You leave no trash. And if you have to move a, a few twigs or branches to make your campsite, you put them back. You put the rocks back. You put the leaves back. You leave no trace, no trash, no mess, no evidence you were there. So if we can walk softly on the earth as humans in construction, that's a little bit difficult, as you know, because we have a big footprint. That's one of my goals. Yes. Excellent. Now, how do you accomplish that in construction or how uh, have you been? Well, one of the things we've done is we focused our company on remodeling buildings and in particular homes. So when you remodel a home, you're giving it a new life. You're not tearing down. I, in fact, I'm trying to think, I don't think we've ever done what's called a teardown in our industry, which is quite popular. You take a small house that's 2,000 feet and you want to make a 6,000 foot house, you just tear the original one down. I'm always pitching the idea, let's use that existing structure. It has a tremendous amount of embodied energy in it. It'll be faster, cheaper, better to reuse whatever we can. Maybe it needs a new foundation. Maybe it needs new drainage, but let's recycle the building. So that's one way that you can reduce the footprint you have on the earth. Interesting, you stated giving it new life as if a building is alive. I believe they are Every building has a soul and is alive. Beautiful. Share with us your uh, your experience and your your attitude as well. I think that's a beautiful insight that you have, mm, actually. Thank you. And I think only some of our clients get that. But the thing we're always trying to do is we look at the building as having a life beyond the life of the human that we're working for, or humans. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we were talking earlier I remember some years ago, we were at the Pacific Coast Builders Conference in San Francisco, and I was uh, one of the quote-unquote green building experts there. And we had a pre-planted question to ask a group of like 200 of these sort of not so much custom builders. That's more tract home builders, okay. not to be impolite, but these are the guys who wear the dark suits and the narrow ties and the white shirts, you know, the MBAs that... Organized. They're not actually builders like me. They organize and finance the whole thing. But the question, they were interested in sustainability, so good for them. And the question that we posed to the tables, there was maybe 20 tables of 10 each or something, and then I was one of the table hosts. The question that we posed to them was, how long do you build your homes to last? Very interesting question. Mm -hmm. And we got answers from these builders, and they said, ranging from the shortest was 25 years life cycle, the longest we got out of these tractone builders was 75 years. They felt 25 to 75 years was a good lifespan. Then they went around and asked us who were the green building experts. I think the shortest anybody said was 500 years. Yes. <laughs> yeah, 500 so, years. So my point is the home, the restaurant, the Stanford University... This university has lasted way beyond Leland Stanford, mm. and it'll continue on for hundreds, hopefully thousands of years. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? It is. Yeah. So when you build, when you design, since it's this modern architect, when the design and build is, you know, I believe is an integrated process. When you do that, it's very important to have a long span of time in mind. And if you do that one thing, the long span of time, 
very importantly, with design as well as construction and not just build for the moment, you automatically are much closer to sustainable building. Excellent. Do you share that as well with each and every client or prospective client to have that mindset? Yes. And of course, <laughs> we're in a profession where we do the client's bidding. Some are more receptive than others. <laughs> I, I think of an example that comes up on the level of home remodeling. Somebody might say, well, I need to have another bedroom. And here's a room where we think it would be great to have our one of our children or a couple of our children sleep. It's in the basement. You go down there and you look at it. And the first thing you realize is there's a closet in the room. And you open the closet and there's the furnace and the water heater. And they're not properly vented. Oh. And you say to them... We could reorganize all this. It's absolutely true. But in order, we can't just put a carpet in here and paint it and call it a safe bedroom because we don't want the toxic byproducts of combustion being what your kids breathe when they sleep. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of where you're bringing these kind of giant principles of 500 years or something down to something really mundane and practical, safety, health. Durability, waterproofing is one we could spend quite a bit of time talking about. You got these buildings in California, at least, are wood frame buildings. You got to keep the water out. So, in those are the ways that we bring this kind of longer term vision to the client: quality, durability, for their benefit, to save them money and give them a happier, healthy family. Yeah. How do you? find prospective clients or how do you work with is it referral based you find them they find you in your social net working i guess for lack of a better term do you find them how typically do you um how do you find them <laughs> the best source for us by far is referrals okay and the best referrals are repeat clients then the next best are their friends our lovely clients and many of whom we've had Business has been around for 39 years, so we have a lot of clients. I like that. So lovely. The, you and, described them and, as lovely. <laughs> and, and it's true. I mean, you yeah. love these people, and they love us, and it's a mutual admiration society. Why? Because we took care of them back then, and then we've taken care of them as they've moved and done other things, or they've stayed in the same house, and we keep working on it, and then their kids and work for them, blah, blah, blah. And so it's the clients are the repeat is the best. Next best is their friends and their referrals. And then it gets weaker and weaker until eventually you get down to like internet leads. I mean, okay, mcbuild.com. We're on the web. So you get people inquiring and they want to know, you know, they live in Timbuktu and they want to know <laughs> what's the floor that you used in, you know, picture number three. And so, you know, you get that kind of stuff. It typically doesn't lead to much work. Yeah. <laughs> you, okay. you answer it anyway. But. Yeah. And speaking of your website, your website is, um, in my opinion, very refreshing. I know it's not a common word used to describe a website for a builder, but it's refreshing. Is that by design? Well, we reworked it some years ago okay. out of admiration, really, for other quote-unquote refreshing websites <laughs> that we saw okay. <laughs> in the industry that we liked. So if you go to mcbuild.com, you'll see that the homepage itself is a rotating selection of 10, 15 photos that are full screen, and they're compelling. They're professionally photographed. The graphic image, I think, is the best way quickly to convey quality of design and constructions. That's why it's so commonly used. In fact, you and I were talking outside, Tom, before we started. People asked you, well, you're going to do the modern architect, but I'm an architect. How am I going to go in on a radio show and yeah. describe design? Yeah. Well, 
there are things you could talk about, concepts of design, but there's nothing, you know, it's the old pictures worth a thousand yes. words. So that's why we feature the graphics like that. Okay. And they're, they're definitely, uh, my opinion, as you said, they're done really well. Where else do you get your sense of uh, inspiration? Because you're, you can tell you're really happy about what it is that you do, Michael. What else do you do besides just build well? <laughs> And med oh. do the meditation and be a part of organizations that help, you know, beautify the built environment. I was thinking on the way over here, I figured you'd ask a question, something like that. <laughs> one, of, one of the books I read as a youth that I haven't touched since, but this is 50 plus years ago, was called Utopia by Thomas More. And I remember writing a paper about it. You know, you write papers in probably junior high. Or sure. And I remember the one point I got out of this, this was long before I became a teacher of an experienced meditator, was Thomas More, as I understood his book, took the position that the only way to create a utopia or an ideal society is one by one by one to elevate the individual's that's Elevate the, only, the individuals. Only one by one by one. So you have to build up their, you know, I don't remember his terminology, but their education, their morality, their sense of ethics, their brotherly love, yada, yada. So that was one of the things that stuck in my mind. And I knew that I still have limitations as a human being, but I have a tremendous interest in self-development. So I do transcendental meditation and I teach it to help other people, but I also do other things. I eat very well. I exercise. I try to uh, be open-minded about other people's ideas because as you've learned from doing this show and life itself, you can learn so much from other people. And I find that tremendously exciting and enriching. I love to be involved with people. At the same time, I love and get inspired from nature, from quiet, from solitude. So it's enriching to be in the society. It's also enriching to withdraw, not just from society and hectic world, but to go backpacking, to go camping, to walk in the woods. And now it's known, actually, that you, if you mm. read, say, Outside Magazine, like I do, they'll talk in there about how troubled children with ADHD and stuff like that, they found if they can just get them to walk in a forest, even a park, it calms them down. Isn't that fabulous? Yes, it So is. nature is an inspiration as yeah. well. What makes you want to be that complete? I know you probably weren't preparing, and I was not prepared to ask you this question. But really, what can you think of that makes you want to be that complete? Well, I'll go back to when I was about 12 years old, and I'm laying on the bed, and I'm looking at the concrete block wall across from me. It's like a foot away from my nose. Oh, wow. And I'm looking at the wall, and I'm just observing it. And I'm wondering, there's my nature inside, my witness is witnessing this wall. And I'm wondering, how do I actually know that wall is there? And I realize, okay, this is a young child and I'm looking at it. I go, well, I'm seeing it. I don't really smell it or taste it at this point. I'm not licking the wall, <laughs> but I'm seeing it. And then I reached out with my fingers and I touched it like we can touch anything. And I thought, okay, well, well, I can touch it, but how do I know that that finger is my finger? What makes it my finger? You know, I'm inside this machinery of the body and there's these fingers. And Tom, you got your fingers over there two yeah. feet away and I got my fingers here. How come yours are yours and mine are mine? What makes that happen? So I was very interested in that from the get-go. So that was one of the things that drove me to study neurobiology at Cal. I originally started in physics. Then I studied briefly in the English department. I got dismayed, actually, because the uh, 
brief anecdote. <laughs> yeah. I was a, a sure. very good student from high school. Like most anyone who goes to UC Berkeley, you're at the top of your class. We had a thousand students at Long Beach Wilson High, and I was among the you know top half dozen or something like that. So you're considered, you know, quote unquote brilliant or something in your little <laughs> space. And then you go to Cal and there's, I don't know how many, 5,000 kids. They're all at least as smart as you, probably smarter and better educated. And you're like, oh, my God. So you get through that shock, and you you have to adapt, and you realize there's so much more to life. But I started physics. Physics, they were more interested in, they explained to us in the class of 800 in beginning physics, they said, actually, we view you guys as weeds. We have to weed out this class. So we're going to make this basically miserable for you to try to discourage a whole bunch of you because we can't deal with 800 oh. of you. We got to winnow it down. Didn't last long in physics as it didn't want to be a weed. Okay. And then, you know, whatever. They were, yeah. they were the gatekeepers to the upper knowledge of physics. Yeah. And probably, it turns out, not terribly interested in it to begin with. So then I tried English for a while. And then I found out in the English department, I had the amazing experience, which we probably all had in life. I had one professor who was not famous. I wrote a paper. And she wrote at the top of the paper, A++, this is the best undergraduate paper I've ever read. And I felt oh. really good about myself. And then the next paper I got back from a much, much, much more famous professor, his TA, because the famous professors don't grade anything, his teaching assistant graded it and gave me a D or an F and said, this is the worst paper oh. I've ever read. And I was like, let's see. In the same week, how can I be the best and the worst? That's English. It's fascinating field, but it's so subjective. So okay. I ended up resorting to something kind of in between, biology. But you see, I was so interested in the nature of reality. The part of biology that particularly fascinated me were to nature, which is the bigger picture. So I studied a lot of natural history, it's called, in the field. Professor Stebbins and other famous people amazing me. But also neurobiology. How does the brain work? How does the hormonal system work? In order to kind of begin to get a better grip on, you know, you reach out with your finger and you touch something. Well, what does that mean? And where is it signaling? Where are we? Yeah. You know, where are you, Tom? Are you in your head? Are you in your heart? Are you in your belly? Where's Tom? Yeah. Where's Michael? Where are we? That was what I was interested in. Yeah. So that sense of consciousness has always been uh, very, you've been very curious about yes. consciousness. It, consciousness and awareness. And who are we? Often, for example, I ask people the question, they'll say, I this, I this, I this. And I say, well, who's the I you're talking about? <laughs> who is it? Because we, and it turns out as you get older, I'm, you know, now a senior, yay, uh, discounts at movie theaters. But, you know, the thing about, you know, been around a long time is you really begin to realize that we actually have kind of multiple personalities, even, a, I'm not talking about somebody who's schizophrenic, I'm just saying yeah. the rest of us, you know, I've got nice Michael and bad Michael and smart Michael and dumb Michael and lost Michael and found Michael and sweet Michael and difficult Michael. We all have that. And which one are we? Are you simply modern architect, Tom? No, you're many more things than that. And you're trying to dredge out of me. Who am I that's not just Michael McCutcheon yeah. builder? Who are we? And so all that multi-layered stuff, that's what fascinates me. Digging beneath the surface. Awesome. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Home First, formerly EHC Life Builders, is a leading provider of services, shelter, and housing for homeless men, women, and children in Santa Clara County. On any given night, more than 6,500 people in the county are homeless. 
Home First helps these people find and keep stable long-term shelter and transitional housing. The organization also maintains the largest outreach team that regularly visits people in the streets. If you would like to help, visit www.homefirstscc.org or call 408-539-2100. We're talking today with Michael McCutcheon, founder of McCutcheon Construction, an employee-owned company. For more information, you can visit mcbuild.com. That's mcbuild.com. Michael employee-owned company. When did you decide to have an employee-owned company, and how is the culture at McCutcheon? The employee-owned company, or ESOP, Employee Stock Ownership Plan, came about as I was nearing the end of my working life, having worked, you know, well over 35 years founding the business and working in it so busily for so many years. 60 to 100 hours a week, eventually one gets to the point where eh, maybe there's something different in life. And for example, spending more time teaching meditation, backpacking, following other interests, still helping at the company, but not running it. Okay, so how do you do that? And we looked into many different options, had a tremendous amount of help from family in particular, my daughter, Lee Genser, who herself has an MBA from Cal and a physics grad, by the way, oh, uh, she, nice. she did a tremendous amount of research, had the business background to help us figure out what to do. Okay, we discovered this thing called ESOP. A couple of my friends, one of them down here in the peninsula, Harold Remodeling, and also a wonderful sustainable building company in uh, Santa Barbara called Allen Construction, my friend Dennis Allen. Both of them had chosen ESOP. And so I investigated it and found that it fit well with our culture. Why? Because we really want to empower employees. And you know, the thing about selling a company, which is kind of your legacy in a way, Mm -hmm. there's a financial reward in theory for these small businesses like mine. The financial reward's not that amazing, but you know, (laughs) there is some. But the real important thing I think for most of us is to see that it carry on and maintain the viability over time. And one of the things I felt in construction, in residential in particular, a great number of our employees are people who would never have the spark, the entrepreneurial spark to own their own business. And I felt that ESOP fit perfectly with the idea that let's give everyone in the company a piece of the pie. Let's just don't have me and my family as owners and founders get everything. Let's distribute it so that everyone gets a piece of the pie, no matter whether they're a laborer or a bookkeeper or the president of the company. So that was one of the origins of trying to create an employee-owned company to invest the employees in realizing that they would benefit by building something that was lasting. And as I looked into it, I found, for example, that ESOP companies have a much higher success rate than non-ESOP companies. Yeah. And you'll find, I believe it's true, Gensler is an example, I think in commercial, McCarthy is another example of ESOP companies. If you start looking around, you'll see Southwest Airlines. There are many large companies also have at least a share of their ownership with the employees. Excellent. You talked about the entrepreneurial spark to start a company. Do you think that entrepreneurship, owning your own company is something that's innate or can one learn it? I think you can learn it, but I think it is also 
innate. There are some people that just naturally are kind of take charge, make it happen people. That's the entrepreneurs. And you'll see them at all levels of society. Think back to high school or junior high school, and you'll see that. And Wow, that far back even. Oh, yeah, yeah, anytime. You'll too. see that kind of the leaders step up. Here's another funny thing about leaders or entrepreneurs. As I, I felt for years I was in that boat. I'm sure you are too, <laughs> having created this show. But imagine you and I and other, you know, well, he probably wouldn't be there, but imagine a famous leader like Art Gensler is in a movie theater. Okay. And somebody up in the front notices some smoke. And somebody says, fire, I think we need to evacuate. Now, what will happen is, naturally, if you have good leaders, somebody will step up, maybe one or two, and they'll have a quick conversation. We need to get out. We can use both those exits, but not the back one. And then the other leaders, let's imagine it's you and me, yeah. are sitting there. We will be leader enough to realize that we can't have 15 of us competing to try to get the 200 <laughs> people out. We have to cooperate. Yeah. So let's let Art or whoever take charge as long as it isn't a stupid idea. Okay, and let them direct everybody. Sometimes we have people in uniforms like police or EMT people or something that are because of their costume, you know, they're kind of the natural leaders, but they could be buffoons. And so the real leaders will step up in any situation in life. Now you're saying, well, can you take the other 200 people and train them in entrepreneurial spirit? I think you can, but it's a fair amount of work. And that's one of the things that challenges of an ESOP company is to try to distribute that kind of entrepreneurial intelligence. I'm sure Apple's yeah. trying to do it. You remember the troubles okay, they had right. when they got rid of Steve Jobs? Yes, <laughs> very true. So can that spark be replicated through or with meditation? Or can you see your own true vision through meditation? I think that meditation brings out people's better nature, their strengths and their weaknesses, but particularly their strengths. And people who are natural leaders will become stronger, more compassionate, more intelligent, more even steady leaders. You know, uh, when you think of enlightenment, which is one of the goals of meditation and any type of meditation, and certainly the TM that I do, one of the many words that's used in the ancient language of Sanskrit, because these meditation techniques are ancient, samadhi, sama, even or steady, di, intellect, even intellect. That means steadiness under fire. I just gave the practical example of fires yeah. happening in the building. You know, some people can maintain calm in an emergency, and some people can't. You gave the example before we came on the air of one of your guests where you had some trouble with the recording and it was a delay for half an hour or something. And an hour and a half. Hour and a half. And William some, Bates, president yeah, of the IA. And he's a leader, right? Yes. And he showed his leadership because you said he was very calm, right? He maintained his calm, his composure, and he was still appreciative. And an hour and a half later, <laughs> he came on and did a great show. Yes. So that's leadership. So he has a natural presence, a natural calmness. Now, cultivating that natural, deep inner awareness is possible through transcendental meditation and increasing it. Okay. And how about the collaboration, which is so key, especially in the builders, the architects, mm -hmm. everyone involved. Now, it used to be like a team of, every, you, you, as you said, they operate in silos in effect. Yeah, that's right. And now, to be more effective, it's actually profitable to work in collaboration, not just because morally, eh, that's a good idea, let's all get along. No, it actually is more beneficial to the owner, it's beneficial to mm -hmm. uh, the inhabitants, it's beneficial to us to collaborate as a collective unit. Share with us why you believe that. I believe it, obviously, but I'm 
curious for it's a great audience. it's a great question tom and i appreciate you bringing it up and it's a conversation that we've been having for decades in the industry and it needs to continue to go on because it surprises me to this day how siloed we still are engineers architects interior designers landscape designers structural engineers contractors electricians plumbers everyone's in their little silo and they're kind of keeping their own little secrets in some ways it's easier for them for any of us to just operate without taking anyone else's interest into account those of us who you know who have families realize that well that doesn't always work or if you have a company you've got to listen to some people our <laughs> uh, Gensler is a great example his podcast is a perfect example of collaboration and listening so when you do collaboration when you get everyone into the room together before you build you can build a better building you design a better building it's more appropriate for the client and for the building which will live beyond the client's use remember we talked about mm -hmm. that earlier it'll be end up being better for the environment it'll be better for the local community because you can think about well, is it better that we rip this thing down or how are we going to access or where are we going to park? You can, all those things get discussed. How long is it going to take? The faster you can get it built, the better it is, the less expensive it is. You can save money, but more importantly, as Sarah Sasanka points out in the Not So Big House, you can make it more efficient. Do you really need that extra 2,000 square feet? Maybe we're better off to build a 2,500 square feet mm -hmm. elegant home than a 5,000 square foot monstrosity. Why the words I just yeah. use, obviously we are, but yeah. the collaboration is what enables that best practice to come out. Why? Because humans are inherently group oriented. If you study anthropology or anything like that, those of us who've been in that space, wonderful anthropology classes at Cal, humans, like most primates, work in groups. We're smarter as a group than we are individually. That's why the internet is so powerful, because it's like a group mind, a group consciousness, in this case electronic, that makes us all smarter. I could get here quickly from where I came from using Google Maps. That's a human sharing of information. So by sharing, we enrich each other and we help protect our interests as humans. And hopefully we broaden that to protect the interests of the planet as well, going back to the idea of leave no trace. Yeah. Can you ascertain if a person has that capacity? Or to, groups of people. To work with other people? Correct. <laughs> is, is, is there a formula mentally that you have that identifies, okay, this is a, a person I not only believe we can work with, we'll actually enjoy the process with. Given that there's going to be challenges, but we're going to overcome them and most likely even make those challenges better. I don't know if there's a formula that you have mentally or emotionally or through your training, your experience to know that these are the people that you can work with or prospectively work with, at least. I think what does learn from experience, and one of the ways that I have done it, there are many different ways, but there's body language reading, there's many different things, how respectfully do the people treat you as an individual. And I'm thinking of a first client meeting, or it might be meeting with an architect or something. One of the toughest things in construction, actually, it ends up not really ultimately being the toughest, but one of the superficial oh. toughest things is to talk about money. Okay. And uh, I find that if, you know, not the very first moment you meet somebody, but somewhere, <laughs> for, somewhere in the process, one should talk about money because money, 
there's a wonderful book called Sapiens. I don't know if you know that book, but I just yeah. was reading. And that guy was explaining money is actually the universal religion of humans. Because we have, you know... I like that. Well, say that again. Money, money is... is the universal religion. Everybody in okay. the world believes in money. Okay. You might have an enemy in North Korea, but you can trade money back and forth because everyone <laughs> believes in it. But money is an abstract concept. There's no gold behind it. or There's no actual intrinsic value in money. It's numbers in a bank or it's bitcoins or something. So when you talk about money, though, people are extremely attached to it. It's vital. It's their bodily fluids almost that you're dealing with. So you start talking about money and you find out real quickly whether you can communicate with people about money and you find out real quickly whether you have a sense of mutual trust and respect to discuss it honestly. So the builder might have to say, well, you know, that kitchen remodel the way you described it, that could be 100000 or more. And the client mm -hmm. will say, well, I, the last three people came, said it could be done for $5,000. And you go, well, I don't, from my experience, I don't think that's true. Yeah. And then you discuss why and blah, blah, blah. And then I point out to them, you know, this conversation we're having about money is just one of many conversations, many of which are going to be crucial, that's a business term, or difficult. If we have good simpatico, that's a good sign that we're going to be able to work together. But if the conversation's breaking down and you don't feel like you can trust and communicate with me, and I maybe feel the same way, there's some kind of roughness here, we should either look into that and solve it, or we should probably just shake hands and say, it was nice to meet oh, yeah. you, Tom. We're probably not the guys yeah. to do your kitchen. Does that make uh, sense? Yeah. Yes, so money does. is one way, and schedules other, expectations is another. You know, well, the last guy said I could build this thing and the kitchen will be done in two weeks. Probably not. So wow. we have to discuss these difficult issues. Super sexy. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. The mission of Safe Haven Animal Sanctuary is to provide care in a peaceful environment for abused, handicapped, aged, or homeless animals. They also offer adoption services and relocation for feral cats in Silicon Valley. Safe Haven is located in the South Bay area and is always seeking donations or volunteers. To learn more, call 408-420-7233 or visit safehavenanimalsanctuary.org. We're talking today with Michael McCutcheon, founder of McCutcheon Construction, an employee-owned company. For more information, feel free to visit mcbuild.com. That's mcbuild.com. Michael, how do you quantify, if you've even thought of this, the value that you bring to a specific project or projects with existing clients or even a prospective client? How do you kind of quantify that value that it's going to at least meet their expectations or address, you know, how do, how do we come close to this? Have you ever put a number to it or you have a formula that you you can share with them to say there's a difference between, yeah, this is 150000 and someone says they can do it for, was it, five or $10,000? I was exaggerating to make the point, so yeah. probably the gap wouldn't be that great. I wouldn't think so. But, but I, but I have had situations that. where builders that I respected claimed, for example, they could build a new home back at the time of the Oakland fire a couple of decades ago could build a, a new home for one of my clients that I'd done a fire settlement for. They wanted to use me. I said the building, carefully calculated out, would take nine months to build, which actually is pretty fast. But another yeah. builder said they could do it same price, but they could build it in four months. And, and my owner said, my God, Michael, I love you guys. I'd love to work with you, but I need to get back in my home. You can understand 
why I want to go with these other guys. I mean, I love you, but they can do it in half the time or less. And I said, well, I, I don't know their company. I can't guarantee they can do that, but I respect them. They have a good reputation, so I can understand why you'd want to use them. So we lost that client. We went on to build the two homes in the neighborhood in the nine months we predicted, and those <laughs> that home and others were, took 18 months to build. So you tell stories like that, and you see where people are coming from. In our industry, a lot of it is what we call a beauty contest. This has to do with architects mm -hmm. or owners. And so... You know, builders, to use a metaphor that's kind of graphic, <laughs> Go ahead. builders will show a little leg, you know, <laughs> okay. to try to give a lower price than is realistic, to try to seduce someone into using them or a more optimistic schedule. Some builders will do that very consciously, the really clever, savvy ones. Others do it unintentionally. Maybe they're inexperienced or they just don't know with that particular thing how long it'll take. I know, for example, you build in a high-rise in San Francisco, you better add 20, 30 percent or more to the cost because it's not as easy to get up and down the elevator and work on the 20th floor as it is to work, you know, in Palo Alto on somebody's ranch home. It's yeah. Parking is difficult. Everything is difficult. So, if you had never done it before, you won't know that, and you could mistakenly give an optimistic view. You follow? Yes. So sometimes it's unintentional, but for the experienced builders, there's a certain amount of gaming the system that happens. <laughs> oh, I, I love that. No, no, I love the uh, the honesty about that. How about the um, a number of architects have shared with us on the show, not just architects, even even uh, civic leaders, that they feel like they hit their stride almost in their 50s, mid to late 40s, in their 50s. Do you feel the same way that you kind of hit your stride as a builder, as a person who helps do that? Or is that, is that just unique to their experience? Well, I think that's true. I think the, the kind of the peak of one's career, the, where your experience, your background, your energy level, all those things are at the peak, probably in your 40s and 50s. Hopefully, that's when you're maximizing the use of your talents. Hopefully, that's when you're maximizing your income on yeah. the gross level. But then I think of somebody like I know the guy who created McDonald's. What is it? Ray, Ray Kroc. Kroc. I think he didn't start till later. 54. Fi yeah. So there's an example. Yeah. If we have listeners out there that have <laughs> want to grow a business and they're in their 50s or 60s or 70s, I wouldn't take it as a limitation, but typically <laughs> your energy, your intelligence meets the experience best and somewhere in there, I would say, 40s and 50s, yeah. yeah. I recently read in, uh, it was Forbes magazine where that was the topic, is at what age was someone's uh, endeavors likely to be successful and how quickly it can. And the discovery was actually between 45 and 46, really? you really accelerated the skill and actually profitability. And Makes I would sense. never have thought of that. 40, because you, you hear such youth, you know, technology typically gets the headlines. So you hear, oh, anywhere between 20, 25 is, you know, optimum. But it's I actually see. 45 to 46 is optimum. And they can accelerate their, as I said, the profitability, their learning, because they shared what you just shared is that all those things, those uh, facets have come together and you have still enough of your physical capabilities and you're mentally sharp because of the experience. And so you really, you're really able to take off. Well, I think when we look at the high tech field, we think Mark Zuckerberg and guys like that, they are very young. And But then you also think of somebody like Steve Jobs or now later Tim Cook. 
They did better Somebody, later. Oh, they did better later. Yes. Or I, I was also thinking, as you were mentioning, that look at Bill Gates, high-tech guy, young, had the intelligence and the drive as a youth. But then look what he's done in his older years, where Much he's really focused so. on the society and helping people. So he's taken that intelligence and his resources, which are enormous, and used them for good. Yeah. And then you think of him and his buddy Warren Buffett. You know, Buffett's in his 80s, I think. And he's still helping people. He's still thinking of other people and transmitting information about finance, but also about bettering society yeah. as a whole. Or Art Gensler, you know. Yeah. I hear you're doing a podcast series that might come out oh, someday yeah. with Art, which yeah. is great. There's a, yes. a, a, an icon of the industry, of design industry, sharing wisdom that he's created. Yes, what have you learned, say, in the last year, if you can recall, that if you look back and say, boy, if I understood that, you know, years ago, I think I might have either been ahead or at least had a better understanding of where I am. Is there mm. anything in particular or a story that you can share that mm. is G-braided? <laughs> It's a great question, and there's so many different things we could talk about if we just had about 20 hours. But, <laughs> but one thing that, yes. that recently yes. struck me, I told you about the book Sapiens, yeah, which Sapiens. is fascinating okay. and well worth reading. Learned so many things from that about us, our nature as humans. But another fascinating book that I just finished was The Hidden Life of Trees. And I have a background in natural history. I told you I have the biology mm -hmm. degree, studied, focused in neurobiology as the quote-unquote undergraduate specialty, but really studied a lot of natural history from amazing professors. And now we have the knowledge in natural history about trees and their interconnectedness is phenomenal. Did you know, Tom, for example, that trees work as a community and trees nourish each other through their root systems? And not only that, they work in community with fungi. It's very interesting. Oh. And so trees are talking to one another. And so it's also true that, let's say, uh, the paternal tree that was the ancient tree that raised all the trees around them, when it dies, the other trees in many cases keep it alive for hundreds of years actually by feeding it in the roots. So even though there's nothing growing above ground, the roots are still alive. I found that fascinating and inspiring that not just humans work as community, but also even trees. Isn't that fascinating? Oh, it really is. So I love that kind of stuff. And onto the trees is, um, I call myself a tree hugger and a building mm. lover. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But there's a palm tree 15 years ago I purchased. It was like three of them. They were just fan palms. Mm -hmm. Three of them. There may be maybe a foot, foot and a half, all three of them in a pot. And I purchased all three of them and I gave one to my uncle, one to a neighbor, and I put another, I can't remember where it was. Well, we actually, one I kept. I still have. Well, that was 15 years ago. The one that I planted in the front yard of my uncle's is now definitely over 25 wow. feet. Okay. Amazing. Same pot. It, they all started the same. The one I have in uh, my front patio is probably no more than three feet because it's mm. been in that pot all that same time. Oh. So I had thick pictures, but I don't want to waste, I'm not able to go through my uh, home uh, picture library on the phone to show you the difference of the same trees that were all the same size, but yet one is in the potted plant and still it looks happy. It's, you know, just really it looks happy. Like they're alive. They are though. It looks happy. And then the one's 25 feet and just like happy. It's on the corner lot and just overlooks everything. What's your thought about that is how, how 
that's the soil it's in and that's as far as it grows. And then one where you say grow as much as you want. You think that works with people? Absolutely. And I would say, you know, give people space to grow. And that gets back to the idea of ESOP. You create a company culture that enables people to realize their higher selves, or I think Abraham Lincoln called it the better angels of our nature. And another thing I want to mention that is exciting about your story about the trees <laughs> yeah. is you plant a tree like that. Imagine you plant a redwood or uh, oh. whatever. Those trees are going to live beyond our human life. Trees live hundreds of years. And one of the fascinating things about hidden life of trees is the guy points out, they communicate much more slowly than we do. We operate at a fast pace. But trees operate at a very slow pace in a long span of time. And we all know that. We think of the ancient forests. We know 95% of the old-growth redwoods were ripped out uh, 150 years ago mm -hmm. by humans that came before us. Now we've maintained some of the old-growth forests. But we can also plant trees. And I'm not talking about monocultures. Again, in this book, he talks a lot about monocultures, whether mm -hmm. it's trees or corn or whatever. They're not healthy. So here, selective harvesting of forests would be fabulous and planting trees and allowing them to grow in a natural way, allowing forest fires to go in a natural way. And if we do that, I think, for example, it gets even, you know, we talked about the long life of homes. We talked about long life of companies. You're talking about the long life yeah. of trees. I found the, I found Here's the photo. a beautiful picture yeah, so the same. of the tree constrained by a pot. It's healthy, but it's small. It's kind of bonsai. And then you have the, the giant tree, which same basic plant, <laughs> but given the freedom to grow. And we as humans have the opportunity to leave a bit of legacy. We're only here a brief time. We've been talking about meditation and yeah. stuff like that. We're here a brief time. I feel like it's so important that we plant trees, that we, sorry to get into politics, but we don't yeah. run up giant deficits to doom the future yeah. generations. You know, I have European friends and they're shocked by our idiotic medical care system where we have homeless people in Berkeley all over the place and they're living in pathetic, unsanitary situation. And Berkeley's one of the most generous places and still we have the people living that way. We should all be embarrassed. And as I drive through here or Piedmont or the Pacific Heights yeah. in San Francisco, it's embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's how, you know, we're constraining those people. We're putting them in a pot. Yeah, along the <laughs> lines of... Putting him in the pot, although I love my pot in here. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, if you keep, it, keep <laughs> care of it, Tom, your little plant will be well cared for. It is. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford University, 90.1 FM. Well, it is embarrassing. I expect all the architects and the built environment builders to clean it up. Now, on that note, I'm not supposed to be speaking out of term. <laughs> but I'm going to rename the Save the Bay to Leave No Trace. Did you know that a study found on average of three pieces of trash along every foot of Bay Area streams leading into the bay? A study found on average three pieces of trash per every foot. The trash you drop in the street can end up in San Francisco Bay or the ocean, where it can kill wildlife such as seals, seabirds, turtles, and beyond. Join with more than 50,000 wanting to save the bay with supporters, advocates, and volunteers to protect our bay and make it cleaner and healthier for people and wildlife. You can help, too. Please visit SaveSFBay.org. We're talking today with Michael McCutcheon, founder of McCutcheon Construction, an employee-owned company. Michael, 
and Charlotte along the lines of leave no trace. It's interesting, and it's I think it's an interesting dichotomy in that the leave no trace, yet you would like to leave a legacy. Mm-hmm. And is that not a trace? And is there a differentiation between leave no trace and your legacy? I think so, because when we talk about leave no trace, what that's talking about is don't leave a line carved into stone that's going to be so hard to erase by the pollution you leave, by the excess material consumption. But that doesn't mean that intellectual legacies, spiritual legacies, those are valuable and they do not negatively impact future generations. So that would be maybe an example for high-tech field would be technology like internet. That'll be a growing thing. In fact, if you go back to Sapiens, that guy explains in there, which I thought was a brilliant point, that the direction that we're going in as a planet is a world government. And he reminds us that in Star Trek, the Enterprise could not interact with any civilization until they had a world government. Before that, when they have all these fractious tribal situations like we have as humans, they're so immature, the advanced civilizations won't even interact with them. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but isn't that a fascinating concept? And there's a guy, Gene Roddenberry, through a fictional series of stories, left a legacy. I don't believe he's still alive, but he left a legacy that is in no way damaging. It's very positive. Our Gensler's doing that. So that's, I think, the difference. An intellectual legacy, you think of Aristotle or Plato or whoever, those things, they are, those are the traces we want. What we don't want is we don't want pollution. We don't want devastation of the earth and the forests, the wars. Those are the things. That's the way I would see it. Good differentiation. On uh, the same note is uh, leaving a, a legacy. I've likened buildings any of the built environment is, uh, imagine, let's go to this. Do you have any homes or buildings that you've done where your name is engraved anywhere or you're recognized? No. Okay. I don't know if it's by design, but stay with me on this one. I liken uh, architects and builders. Most buildings do not have their name recognition. Typically public places may have it. Most do not. In fact, you'll read articles of hundred million dollar projects approved beautiful designs and you'll have here everyone in the world who's involved with that project and you will have no mention whatsoever of the architect or the builder who's going to do this usually that, it's the funder who gets the recognition they get a, yeah, they, they get sometimes not even them fully the sackler yeah. building or something. So, so, someone sometimes not even them so i've likened it to imagine you you mentioned sapiens and who the author was imagine to me buildings are no different than a book. Imagine all these great books that you've mentioned with no author. Mm. Imagine who wrote Sapiens. I don't know, but it's a great book. Harari, I think. But anyway, go ahead. Okay, but imagine that. That's just maybe a simplistic analogy, but yet it is. Who is the author of this? Who is the author and who built it? Who published it? Mm -hmm. And you're a builder and an architect designed a home and yet you're not recognized for it, and it's become habitual. Mm-hmm. What is your belief on how to pivot that a little bit and well, change we, that? Well, we do have ways, Tom, that do some of that. There's award programs, for example, as you know, that recognize people. There's trade magazines that the profession reads, but there's also what we call shelter magazines. They might be gentry or whatever, Architectural Digest, etc., that recognize 
most of those, actually, when you look into it, the great majority of them focus on the designers, and many, many times they don't mention the builder. No. The architects and designers are often the ones getting the things published. Builders tend to kind of move on. <laughs> and yet, I think it's kind of a cool idea to have some kind of a registry, you know, or maybe like on some historic homes, there's like a little tiny plaque or something. Yeah. But Frank or Wright used to have a red tile. Yeah, they could. And yet, at the same time, there are, unfortunately, a significant number of homes remodeled or built where people aren't entirely happy, happy with it. Yes. And they <laughs> wouldn't. They want to have they, it. Yeah. This. Yes. Yeah. They might put a, what is that, the X across the guy's name. <laughs> Do not use built, them. Designed and built it. So that, you know. What, what okay. Is, you know, the bone, what is it, bone structure? Yes, Was bone, that the yes. company where their focus is just trying to make the process and the construction as intelligent, as smooth as possible? I love that. That's what me do at McCutcheon, yeah. too. Same thing. And, uh, well, you can see my bent is I want you guys to have the recognition for every project that you do, even if it's a small tile or even on the ground, a recognition for the contribution that you've made to the life of a building. Mm -hmm. And I told you I'm a tree hugger and a building lover. That's just the way I'm built. Anything else that we may not have touched on on our show, Michael, that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, actually, I want to say something different than that. I would like to congratulate you on the success of this show, The Modern Architect, well, thank you. and tell you that I think it's needed in our industry. I know you volunteered to do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bless you for doing it to help us in the community. I've listened to many, many of the podcasts, so I would urge your readers to go to modeler.com. I think you'll probably pitch this in a minute and check it out. There's many, many, there's over a hundred of these and I've listened to already a dozen of them or so. They're all fascinating. So I would highly recommend it and I commend you for doing this show to enable us to collaborate in the industry. Excellent. You're walking the talk. That's for sure. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Michael. Michael, it's been an honor and a pleasure having you. Thank you very much. I My hope you, pleasure. I hope Thank you, you consider Tom. at some point coming back again. We'll Anytime. Again. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Michael McCutcheon, founder of McCutcheon Construction, an employee-owned company. For more information, feel free to visit mcbuild.com. That's mcbuild.com. Join us again next time we welcome another outstanding architect, builder, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and on location in California is a production of KZSU Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Hyagi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect.